This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Patrick serves up the hardest-hitting podcast in tennis with news, politics, and insights you won't find anywhere else. Here's Patrick McEnroe. Welcome to another edition of Holding Court, everyone. Patrick McEnroe here, and uh, trust me when I tell you, I've been lying in wait for this interview for quite some time because this young lady uh, is, is quite the mover and shaker in the world of mental health. And of course, as you know, this season four of Holding Court, we're focusing quite a bit on overall mental health. But this young lady, Anastasia Vlasova, who is a student at NYU, has been at the forefront of this, particularly for teenagers and parents alike in the last couple of years. And I welcome you, Anastasia, to Holding Court. Thank you for doing this in the middle of your busy school schedule. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so intrigued, um, obviously, by your history, because I know there's some tennis in there. So I want to get to that as well. But in watching quite a few of your interviews and your own podcast, which is called Our Turn to Talk, which gives um, the ability to, of, of teen, you're not, a, well, are you still a teenager or are you 20? Yet? I just you're turned 20 a few weeks ago. So. You just turned 20. All right. Happy birthday there. But Our Turn to Talk um, is your podcast where you focus on uh, having teenagers and people of your generation be able to speak their truth, speak about their issues and of dealing with mental health and some of the challenges they face. So why don't you uh, tell this? Remember, this is a tennis audience. So they're going to be interested in your tennis background. I noticed in many of your interviews and your podcasts that you don't discuss tennis too much. Maybe I missed that. So give us a little background on, on, on how tennis became a part of your upbringing and how you ended up at NYU. Yeah. Well, I was born to Russian parents, and so it was kind of a given that I'd be playing tennis at some point in my life. Um, I first went on the court when I was uh, like six. We had just moved to the States. I was an incredibly stubborn child, so I showed up one day, hated it, and then never went back until, again, uh, around seventh, sixth or seventh grade, I started to play again. And at that point, I just became really invested in living an active, fitness-oriented lifestyle, and I just loved all the life skills that tennis was teaching me, too. And I just felt myself getting stronger and more independent, and I fell in love with with um, playing competitively and so I had this goal of playing professionally of course as every young tennis player does and my idol at the time was Maria Sharapova um, just because similar backgrounds and all of my coaches would always like call me Maria Sharapova basically <laughs> and I was like I'll take it <laughs> um, right. and then uh, my goal began uh, became to play in university because I realized I probably am not good enough to play on the pro circuit um, and then my goals just changed a lot um, as I progressed throughout high school and I started to get involved with mental health um, activism and explore other intellectual curiosities of mine. And I realized that tennis is something that I'll have for the rest of my life to play with people um, and to bond with people over, but I don't want to make it the center of my life. And in fact, it was actually something that um, prompted me to uh, get involved with mental health activism, but not for the best reasons initially, because um, because of not because of tennis, but as I was um, competing or like at the height of my competition time in my life, I started to develop. Yeah, what what age what age were you then? I was, was were you like thirteen, um, fourteen. Yeah, I say I was fourteen, fifteen, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, right. I started to get really into like working out and training, weightlifting, and all this stuff, and. 
I developed quite an unhealthy relationship to food and also to working out, and that affected my relationship with tennis as well because I became, like, super perfectionistic and put just so much pressure mm. on myself and had so much performance anxiety. And so that's where that whole mental health thing came in. Interesting. Yeah, because yeah, tennis is not the best sport to have to be a perfectionist, although many, many all-time greats have that. But you have to have that balance, right? Because I, I, I tell parents this all the time at our academy here in New York. By the way, I'd love to have you come out anytime. I think it would be awesome for you to speak to our kids there that are going through the similar things that you went through as a, as a, as a solid competitive junior player. But I, I found that, you know, I spoke to Alexis Castori. She'll be part of my uh, season four. She's a mental performance coach and she deals with a lot of teens, specifically in tennis, in golf, a lot of in, in other individual sports. But she says that's, a, that's sort of a similar pattern to what you were talking about, which was that Kids, you know, at 10, 11, they think, oh, I'm going to be a pro. 12, 13, you know, they get into tournaments. And then around 14, 15, they start to realize, well, wait a second, maybe I'm not going to be a pro. Um, but I'm interested in the, the intellectual side that you started to talk about, how that became something that was more interesting to you. Um, did that happen after your own mental health issues and your, your, your issues with eating and, you know, being super fit? I know you talked about... Um, on some of your other interviews about being obsessed with Instagram and then you deleted it from your app and you, you know, you don't do that anymore. So how did, how did that all come together as you were sort of navigating the tennis world and then into the rest of just being a teenager with a lot of interests? Yeah. So while I was developing my interest in tennis, I was simultaneously uh, reading a lot of business and psychology books. I set this goal for myself freshman year of high school to read one book every single week. That was my New Year's resolution because I realized that I, along with my peers, just wasn't reading enough. And so I started to learn a lot about entrepreneurship and psychology and human connection and how to develop interpersonal and public speaking skills um, through these books. And I found them fascinating. And ever since I was little, I was always working on these different creative projects and starting little businesses, whether they were like selling banana bread or selling these DIY Halloween art kits and um, chocolate chip cookies and all that stuff. And I envisioned myself going to university and studying um, business um, alongside mental health. Um, and also, I mean, those interests have transformed so much since actually coming to school. And now it's like mm -hmm. my concentration is designing systems for environmental and human flourishing. And that entails many different things that I won't get into because that could be a podcast <laughs> in and of itself. But um, right. I, it was tough because I, on the one hand, I saw, I, I was reading a lot about like what it means to be a college athlete. And what every athlete said was that it's incredibly time consuming and that's basically your career for that duration of um, college. And I became really concerned that I just wouldn't have enough time to devote to perhaps um, starting my own company or something like that on top of classes and on top of performing as um, a top athlete. And then eventually I got um, a pretty severe injury in my foot junior year. And so that had me out of tennis for about six months. And during that time, I had a bit of an identity crisis because I uh -huh. for so long had associated myself with uh, being this athlete who was always moving, always playing t tennis tournaments. But I took that time to um, imagine what my life could be like 
five to 10 years from then um, if I didn't pursue tennis. And that vision of my life entailed a lot of uh, like entrepreneurship and other academic oriented goals. And that excited me just as much as the prospect of playing college in tennis. And so that's when I realized that perhaps it's okay to transition to an entirely different dream. Um, and I can just um, approach these this new set of dreams with the same grit and perseverance and um, uh, like discipline that tennis taught me. It's amazing to see how many different interests you have. Because when I went on your website, it said you're – and maybe this has changed because I know things can change quickly <laughs> when you're in college. It said that you were studying the intersection of technology, child psychology, design, and entrepreneurship. So is, is that still accurate? Or yeah, is that, I need to update that? that website. I actually, I was on my LinkedIn earlier <laughs> okay. today, and I was like, oh, boy, I need to update this stuff. But, um, yeah, no, it's it's different. I mean, all of those things fall underneath my current concentration at Gallatin. Right. But uh, – yeah, it's vastly different, I would say. All right, so let's go. Let let's let's go to how your uh, interest in, in being in the forefront in mental health started, which is really during the pandemic while you were still in high school. Uh, it was called "This Is My Brave," and, and and you said in one of the interviews I heard you do that it was something that changed your life. Mm-hmm. How and why did that change your life? Yeah, um, well, interning for "This Is My Brave" gave me my very first public platform for speaking about my own mental illness experiences, specifically my struggle with um, anxiety, social anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, uh, and also my restrictive binge eating disorder too. And that was something that I um, harbored a lot of shame around for the longest time. And so to speak openly about it on a public platform like Instagram and um, podcasts on Spotify and all of these different public platforms where, you know, I didn't know who was listening at all, um, but it was a practice of vulnerability and self-acceptance. And I think those were really, that feeling, those feelings were really pivotal in me, uh, in my life trajectory, because they showed me that um, these things happen to me, but they don't define who I am. And in fact, they are an incredibly valuable part of my story and my narrative, and I shouldn't be ashamed of them. And in fact, I want to commit my life to um, being vulnerable as much as I can to inspire other people to do the same, because I think that vulnerability really is the first step to self-acceptance and figuring out who it is that you are, who it is that you want to become, and realizing that all the perhaps mishaps you've had in your life are things that didn't make you feel particularly good don't define who you are in this very moment and you have way more control over um, your future than than you think and yeah I think that's why it was so transformational it just gave me this power that I didn't think I had for so long and I think it also showed me that um, there's a reason that I was born um, like with the voice that I have um, to, to because I wanted to speak for people perhaps that didn't quite have the courage just yet, but perhaps by hearing my story, that could also um, cultivate a little bit of courage within them to share their story. And then it'll turn into this domino effect of increased vulnerability all over the world. And I think that that can lead to massive positive changes all around and um, a greater sense of empathy among people. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious that you're on your way to helping. You've already done it, helped a lot of people. I'm, I'm interested, Anastasia, in... in when, when you made the decision to confront some of your own issues, I know you talked about one time just crying to your mom for a couple of hours or, uh, that, that she listened to you. Was it something that, you know, when you, when you went into the public sphere to discuss it, was it more at that point about trying to help yourself? Or, and then when did you realize 
that you could how you could impact others? Was it just a process of you figuring out, okay, this is what I need to do to help my own mental well-being, and then, oh, look at this. I could actually help a lot of people as well. How did that materialize? Yeah, when I, I so the first time that I publicly spoke about mental health was actually for a nonprofit called Our Minds Matter, um, and it was for their uh, annual gala. And I went up and I spoke in front of about 300 people about my personal mental illness experience and finished off with what I hope for the future of Gen Z's um, mental health. And I think during the beginning stages of this mental health advocacy process, it really was um, a channel for me to help myself because, again, it was that consistent practice of vulnerability. But then it got to a point where I kind of got sick of talking about myself, and I think I'd gotten to a far enough point in my own healing that I didn't feel the need to share my story so publicly anymore. And that's also the time when I started to decline, like, different, like, news um, speaking opportunities to share my story and like different um, podcast episodes and but never yours. I would always do your podcast. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah. But it's much less about myself now and more about um, describing basically the benefits of being vulnerable and the benefits of uh, learning self-acceptance and what it means to cultivate those things and how we can help um, create a a society that is far more empathetic and understanding of one another. So it's way more um, externally focused than internally focused. Like it's less about my story, more about how, how can we all help each other? Yeah. Well, when we come back here on Holding Court, Anastasia Vlasova joining me, I want to ask Anastasia about how she feels about some of the big-time pro athletes that have come out in the last couple of years and discuss mental health. We'll do that when we come back. North Organic CBD is a new sponsor of Holding Court. I love their CBD gummies. They come in two delicious flavors, strawberry lemonade and green apple. I've had them both, both amazing. One a day, and you're totally okay. I like to stay active. I like to keep playing tennis. I like to get in the gym. That's why I love North Organic CBD. Their products are made in the USA. They're high quality. They're specially formulated, broad spectrum, organic CBD products for everyday adventurers. Don't forget about the very popular CBD salve from North Organics. Immediate relief of any physical pain. I use it daily for my sore shoulders, sore knees, hips, you name it. It works wonders. Go to NorthOrganicCBD.com and enter Patrick20. That's Patrick20 for 20% off your order. The Johnny Mac Tennis Project transforms young lives. By removing the economic, racial, and social barriers to success through tennis. JMTP provides tennis as a vehicle for greater life opportunity. The programming provides a pathway to success through competitive tennis, leading to increased health and fitness, college scholarships, and incredible career opportunities. JMTP introduces tennis to thousands of underserved New York children every week. To date, the Johnny Mac Tennis Project has reached over 10,000 students through its community programs, providing 462 individual scholarships, totaling over $8.6 million, and 32 of its scholarship recipients have gone on to receive college scholarships through tennis. For more info, go to jmtpny.org. I can't wait to hit the court after school. 
All right, welcome back to Holding Court. Patrick McEnroe here alongside Anastasia Vlasova, who is a student at NYU and has just an amazing story to tell, which she's in the process of telling us. Anastasia, I want to ask you about, you know, we've seen this a lot from from big-time athletes. Um, You know, Naomi Osaka comes to mind in women's tennis, particularly in the last couple of years, speaking about her own mental health issues. When you hear about those stories, I, I, I guess it wouldn't surprise you, right? Because you were you know, such a perfectionist, as you said, a great student growing up, you know, reading a book a week, doing all these things, yet you still felt in some way it wasn't good enough. So I, I'm guessing you can relate to even these big-time athletes who are at the top of their own game um, in what they're feeling and, and, and actually that they're able to tell their stories must make you feel pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I think it – sometimes I, I like – get this feeling of oh dang like I wish I did try to go pro because I feel like at this point in my life I'm so much mentally stronger and like just it's not even mental strength necessarily it's more of just like I have a greater understanding of how to manage my emotions and how my emotions affect my actions and behavior and overall performance and so I I do wonder like if you took my mental state today and paired it with like my um like tennis ability a few years ago like could it create a pro I don't know I, listen but. I saw I saw in your video you have a great video on your website of you growing up in in Russia on the bus and and you talk about that in in your uh, on your website as well, but also showed you hitting a pretty darn good forehand. I was like, okay, I need to see a little more of that tennis game because that forehand looked pretty darn solid, Anastasia. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I need to get back into it. <laughs> um, well, listen, you could come and visit us at uh, Randall's Island, our academy, anytime, as I said. It'd be great to hit some balls with you, and, and I think you could um, you could teach a lot of our kids some some real valuable lessons as well. No, I'd love it. I mean, I actually coached little kids for a long time from the ages of like three to 16 for like a, a year or two back when I worked at a tennis club. So I, I could do some right. coaching as well. But yeah, you could do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So but again, like when you when you hear when you first heard Naomi Osaka, for example, say, um, you know, she didn't want to talk to the press and, you know, she's tired of an- answering all the questions that at least to her came across as sort of negative, you know, why did you lose that match? How come you're not good on clay or whatever it is? What, what, what were you thinking when you heard her come out with her story? I was simultaneously impressed but by her vulnerability, but also shocked at how far behind the sports world is when it comes to mental mm-hmm. health. Um, probably mm-hmm. because I was so deeply entrenched in the mental health advocacy sphere for a few years where anyone ever, or, or anything everything that anyone ever talked about was mental health, right? And so to come into this place of like tennis and sports and realize how little is acknowledged between or about the relationship between mental health and physical health and like performance on the court and like performance inside of the mind, it was just baffling to me because I thought like, wouldn't the tennis game be so much more advanced if people were to acknowledge (laughs) all this, all these connections. And um, so I thought she was hitting at something really important. And I think honestly, she was, her story, her vulnerability is like the starting point for something really great for the game of tennis. Because I think that now that so many people are coming out about um, their struggles with anxiety, perfectionism, whatever it may be, perhaps there'll be greater investment um, among like the, the teams supporting the, the professional athletes and other organizations and entities. Uh, there'll, there'll be more investment in how can we support these athletes mentally and like really understand um, the, the core um, the core root of 
perhaps why they're experiencing performance anxiety or um, these other pressures. And also, I hope that there's going to be increased opportunities for privacy for these professional athletes, too, because mm-hmm. their lives are so public. And I wholeheartedly believe that most of them, if not all of them, are in it because they love tennis so much. Like, there's no way you can get that good and right. have your whole career be motivated by this desire to be in the public eye. So I don't buy that when people argue, no, 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 like they signed up for this. They signed up for this pub- publicity mm. because I don't think they did. You know what I mean? Like they couldn't have been playing so well for so long to get to such a high point in their life if they were solely motivated by this external validation. Um, so I think that they deserve That's a great privacy. point. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point because, you know, I mean, you know this as a junior tennis player who got to a high level. I mean, to get that good just as a kid, you know, takes a tremendous amount of dedication. If you really don't like it, it's hard to get there. Um, you're 100% right about that. Uh, when you talk about, you know, your podcast, Our Turn to Talk, it's called, What what is your motivation and what who are the types of people that you are talking to um, so that they're, you're, in essence, giving them a turn to talk? Mm-hmm. I think my motivation is twofold. On the one hand, it comes from an internal desire to understand what humility means, um, because I've noticed the more I talk to young people, the more I am humbled um, and the more curious I become about other people. So I think, you know, there's one side of it where it's almost like selfishly motivated because I'm able to to develop this sense of humility. But um, on the other hand, I see how people light up after they're given this safe space to open up about things that for so long they've kept suppressed or just haven't felt heard um, about. And so it feels amazing seeing that just an hour and a half to two hour long conversation with a young person can um, significantly impact their life for the better. And the types of people that we um, seek to speak with are just people who are willing to be courageous and vulnerable about their experiences and who want to see a different society, one in which people are far more open about their emotions and aren't ashamed of the things that for so long they've been socialized to be ashamed about. Um, And it's truly inspiring. And then the podcast is meant for people of all ages, of all backgrounds. Um, It's meant for both young people and parents, um, educators as well. I think overall, everyone can benefit from understanding how um, young people's minds work and also the pressures of today that are placed upon young people. I mean, we're living in digital age. We're the first generation to have grown up with cell phones and social media. And so I think it's important for older people who are setting policies and creating different regulations and programs for that impact young people to understand how um, the digital age is affecting our brain and emotional mechanisms. I mean, it's, an, it's, it's, it's amazing because, uh, look, I have three teenage daughters, so I understand what you're talking about when you, when you talk about Instagram and TikTok and um, the, the effect it can have in a, in a positive way, obviously in a negative way. You obviously have dealt with this yourself a lot. You talked about the, the pro athletes, you know, like not signing up for that. A lot of them have the ability now to kind of almost create their own stories, right? Their own media stories. They don't even have to talk to the media um, as much as they used to. You know, when I was playing on the tour, you know, we didn't have that. So, you know, talking to the press was 
you know, not only part of the job, it still is part of the job, but something you had to do and you're really only way to get your, your name, your brand, whatever you want to call it out there. Now you have these athletes, influencers, artists, musicians, wh- whoever it is in the public eye have this ability to create their own brand, right? On social media. You've seen obviously the positives of that and also the negatives of that. And how do you look at balancing that moving forward? Because obviously this is a huge issue for people of all generations, but particularly, as you said, your generation has grown up living with the phone in their hand. I mean, my go-to answer is delete Instagram because that's just what I did. And when right. I tell you my life has been has become so, so much better and calmer, like that's the truth. Um, but I understand that for some people it does provide um, a great source of connection. And I've learned that through my interviews throughout our turn to talk with different young people who perhaps come from communities where, you know, they feel incredibly just like, ostracized and like an outlier and don't have any friends and so for them social media is this source of um, social connection and I understand that I just think that um, it's really important to understand your intention behind going on the app every single time you do um, ask yourself are you scrolling because you're trying to distract yourself from reality are you trying to um, stall right now from doing work that you need to do Um, are you trying to basically, I don't know, waste time by looking at someone else's life instead of creating your own life. I don't know, just engage in in self-inquiry as you use this app because at the end of the day, I mean, so many young people are living incredibly critical stages of their life on their phones right now. And the time spent on these uh, technological devices can be used for something far more productive in my opinion and not in the sense of oh you could be doing homework in that way productive more in the you could be engaging in self-inquiry self-reflection introspection or hanging out with real people and developing your real life social skills you know Um, and all of those things can create a really strong foundation for the rest of your life and can help instill this sense of confidence and self-efficacy that you just wouldn't develop if you're constantly on your phone like eight hours a day which I'm pretty sure is the average for teens right now in the U.S. so just really being intentional about how you spend your time because at the end of the day I know it's cheesy but you really do only get one life so be super intentional um, and conscious about how you live it. Speaking of your one life Anastasia where will Anastasia Vlasova be in 5, 10 and then 25 years? Oh, geez. What, what, do you, what do you want to do? I mean I can tell you what I'm years. doing the next few months which is like enough <laughs> All right, tell me that too. I'm yep. all right. So I actually just a few days ago found out that I am now the CEO of a company called Sleep Cozier, which is um, okay. a leisure wear brand. So I'll be running that in addition to finishing up my second semester of sophomore year at NYU. And I'm also also found well, out. By the way, but let me let me stop you. <laughs> let me stop you for a second. I wanted you to finish, but that it it brings up what your message on your website. You're, you know, you used to have the goal was to read a book a week. And I'm sure you had other uh, lofty goals, but now your latest goal, do you remember what it is? Was it the sleep eight hours? Yes, sleep eight hours a night. Oh, yeah, I'm getting that. So why wouldn't you be the CEO of this company? (laughs) Yeah, um, and I'm continuing my, simultaneously continuing my internship at a children's media startup that my friend is working on, um, which I'm really excited about because it's, the goal of it is to teach children how to, 
pursue human flourishing, basically. And then also, this is probably the thing I'm most excited about, but I recently found out that I was, um, my proposal for a grant was accepted and that I'll be going to Iceland this summer to study and wow. illustrate volcanoes. <laughs> wow, because I know you're big into drawing, so that's part of uh, that that part of you. You'll be able to uh, dive into that. Amazing. How long is that going to, how long is that for the whole summer? Um, no, just for a few weeks. So, but okay. the research, I'm, like the actual visit will be just a couple of weeks and then the drawings and research essay will progress throughout the entire summer. Well, absolutely amazing. You don't need to tell me where you'll be in 10, 20 I have no years. idea, my to be quite is, honest. My, <laughs> my guess is you're going to be doing something amazing. I want to thank you for coming on Holding Court. Um, everyone, it's uh, her podcast, Anastasia Vlasova, is called Our Turn to Talk. You can get it just where you get my podcast, Spotify, and all the rest of the outlets. It has been a pleasure to talk to you, to get to know you, and I really appreciate you doing this. And you have... Anastasia, an open invitation and come up to Randall's Island to our tennis academy anytime you want. Noted. Thank you so much. I'm excited. I have my tennis racket right here. I haven't used it yet this year. So anytime we'll get out there. If you're still in that forehand that well, I'm in trouble. <laughs> uh, I can't promise that, but I'll try my best. All right. Anastasia Vlasova, everyone, on Holding Court. Don't forget to subscribe to and share Holding Court. Holding Court is powered by Mudhouse Media.